We are talking once again with Ari Cohn. He is the founder and president of the Post-Prison Education Program, and we are doing the July edition of the Post-Prison Education Program radio show. Ari, take it away. Thanks, Mike. Um, today, we want to talk about uh, programs being denied by the state to prisoners. Um, and that happened to have been Emma Hogan's field of study on which she did, she did her like 85, 90 page in depth thesis, uh, before she graduated. And so we're gonna, Emma's gonna lead a discussion about Washington State denying prisoners programs that they need to have a successful life. And then with us also, so, so I'm Ari, the older, and then Ari, the younger, is down here, Ari Rose Marquez. And Adrian Tunney is yakking away on the phone, probably talking to a prisoner, is, is going to join the conversation. So Emma, take it away. All right. Yeah, so we want to talk about um, program various programming, but um, in particular, um, barriers to educational programming, um, educational access in prisons. Um, I think there are some public misconceptions and we've talked about this like um, kind of on a larger scale, like rooted in uh, meritocracy and those kinds of, um, you know, values in America that um, these people who are incarcerated are able to kind of like pick themselves up from the bootstraps. I think that's the saying. Um, and essentially, um, like that it's, it's their choice to participate in educational programming and that they are, um, somehow able to, um, you know, make choices that make them able to be more successful when they reenter society. And we want to talk about how many times that is just absolutely not the case. There are so many barriers for individuals to um, have the chance to participate in this programming, um, such as, you know, infractions that restrict them from participating at all um, to, uh, you know, one of the more upsetting um, cases for us this week had to do with the hard cutoff um, of years left on someone's sentence um, that restrict them from being able to participate in any educational programming or programming in general. But um, and yeah, so I think uh, definitely that's one of my main focuses in my work that I plan on um, pursuing for the rest of my career is um, just the inaccessibility of education to um, worthy, motivated, driven, um, intelligent students who have, uh, you know, who want badly and have seized any, every educational um, opportunity that has come their way and still are barred um, access to educational opportunities. And I think that's uh, dehumanizing and wrong, like I've talked about. And I think um, just a lot of the individuals that we are working with, just issues that have come up on a day-to-day -day basis with us working in student services um, even in the past few weeks, illustrate um, just kind of like the vast array 
of barriers in place for people to participate in educational programming at all, regardless of the quality of the educational programming, regardless of, you know, how, you know, capable they are once they get there, like people are not able to access these opportunities at all. So I think that the stories, um, you know, kind of illustrate this and speak to the issue best. So I wanted to go around and we can talk about some different, um, the stories of some individuals that we're working with. And do we want to start with Douglas Allen? You know, I was, you know, I, I, I was listening to you talk. I was just remembering quite a few years ago. So just so everybody, everybody knows if you're, if you have more than four years left on your sentence, it, it's, it's somewhere between difficult and impossible to get into programming classes. And the DOC says that's because they don't have the money to do it. Uh, and, um, which means that the legislature is responsible for this problem. So like what's new? I mean, if you, if you're looking for the bad actors in society, you need look no farther than government. The people in prison are not the bad actors in society. The bad actors in society that I think are causing the, the worst, most difficult problems from mal, due to mal, malfeasance and misfeasance is it's government at every level, but in Washington State, especially at the Washington State Legislature. I had, I had this recurring fantasy that somebody will bulldoze the Washington State Legislature, give the, all the marble and windows to Habitat for Humanity, sell the land to Marriott and turn it into something productive, a Marriott resort, and let the legislators work from homes or in, in, in warehouses or something more appropriate, whether they accomplish or not. But anyway, a woman who, she still works for the Department of Corrections, and she's in a, fairly, she's in a middle-level management position. She was so upset and what was going on at the Washington State Penitentiary that she literally got in her car and drove from Walla Walla, Washington to Seattle and came into our office and sat in my office in tears a couple of years ago that people who have lengthy sentences can't get into programming. And, and I had forgotten about that, although the issue is always on my mind. But uh, I, th I think... Uh, it kind of, to me, you know, in prison, if you look at prisoners, it's two groups, really. I, I, I think we're so far past into prisons and everybody will have a heart attack, but I, I, I think the larger issue is not racism anymore. I think it's classism, and I think it's class warfare, uh, or whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's in, in the prisons, People of all races and genders are caught up in, in a simple divide, people who can make it on their own after they release and people who cannot make it on their own after release. And that often uh, has a lot to do with comorbidity, uh, mental health, whether you're suffering serious mental illness, whether you're suffering serious mental illness plus addiction. But it, it, the, the dividing line in my mind is you can make is divide the prisoners into two groups: people who can make it on their own after release if they're willing to work hard at it, and people who can't make it on their own without intervention. 
And um, what the DOC is doing is locking people out of the classes, locking the people who cannot make it on their own out of classes. Those are the people who need the head start for release, and they're the people that are being denied it. Uh, and then the people who are getting access to programming, they're, um, they're the people that are within four years of release uh, that they, they can make it on their own. I mean, the DOC data breaks us down. I mean, we don't, you know, 77% of recidivists are, are high risk to recidivate for the DOC. At least 34% of Washington's prisoners suffer serious mental illness. Uh, people that are low, moderate risk to recidivate. Uh, uh, don't basically don't recidivate. They make up about ten percent. So there's strong data behind what I'm just kicking out here, and uh, uh, and and so you carry that forward to recidivism. You know, like what's going on with with people catching new cases after release, uh, or dying from overdose, or dying from suicide, um, and. Uh, and, and so if, it's pretty easy to make the argument that if you don't prepare the people, if you don't give the people who need the most opportunity to prepare for release a chance to program, then you're blocking, you're blocking those people from possibility of having, having a chance of releasing and doing well. And, and so that falls on, it falls on the legislature. I mean, so I, I, I want to cut myself off here in a second, but it's like when Douglas Allen, who's in the prison at Monroe that, that Emma just mentioned, Kate got on our radar, um, I wrote, and he's doing life, and, and, and because he's doing life, he's locked out of being on the program. He's a really bright guy. And, and he's motivated and, and driven to do well and, uh, and wants the program. But when, when, when he came on our radar, I wrote to Daniel Armbruster about this issue that's been a longstanding issue for a long time. Daniel's uh, assistant secretary in charge of reentry at, at the, at the uh, at DOC headquarters. And, and I'm like, is there any way to get people like Mr. Allen, and not just him, but people like him, into in, into programming. And and she wrote back a really thoughtful, super lengthy email, which I'm glad to forward to anybody that asked for it. Just write me, ori.com at postprisonedu.org. It was a really thoughtful email, and she talked about, uh, and, and the reason I'm mentioning it is because Loretta Taylor, who's in charge of programs for DOC, just made a lie out of Daniel's email in writing yesterday. So, so uh, Daniel talked about DOC headquarters being willing to consider letting people like Mr. Allen into programs, into educational programming. And, and, and she said, what she said was she wanted to see that these are truly motivated people, not people that will waste the investment, but that they're really truly motivated and and uh, not come see, come saw, like won't be have a fleeting interest in it, but will really work their butts off. And so then, and she said she'd like to know the person's name. So I responded and I gave her 
Mr. Allen's name. And then I, and then, then I waited for her to get back to me and she didn't. And then, and then I forwarded my earlier email and I just said, Danielle, I'm trying to move this up in your inbox. What's and, and so all of a sudden, and she didn't respond again. And then uh, day before yesterday, her secretary, her executive administrative confidential person, whatever the big title is, forwarded an email from Loretta Taylor, who's, um, she's, the way I look at her is she's in, in uh, she's in charge of uh, programs at DFC headquarters. I'm looking for her most recent email so I can get the title right. Uh, yeah, so she's Education Services Administrator for DOC headquarters. And so, like, Danielle's assistant forwarded an email from Loretta. It just made a total lie out of what Danielle had said earlier and just said budgetary concerns are such that we, we won't be able to let people like Mr. Allen in the program. So, um, Mr. Allen, who wants to program and build up a record, of rehabilitation and it while locked up so we can go before the indeterminate sentence review board and prove to them that he would be a good person to be released into society. He can't do it. He cannot do it. The Department of Corrections will not allow him to program. So um, you know, left hand, they want people to program ISRB. I've testified in front of ISRB so many goddamn times it's ridiculous. And the first question out of their mouth, even before hello, is, you know, show us, tell us what you've done while you've been locked up. You know, do you have a college degree? Have you done this? Have you done that? What have you done while you've been locked up? And, 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 and so that's a requirement. ISRB, by the way, is headquartered at DOC headquarters. And, and, and uh, so that's a requirement of, of the Indeterminate Sense Review Board. It's a requirement of DOC that if these people want to have a chance of having a free life and building a life worth living and, and, and being responsible in the future, they have to program, but the same state that requires them to program prevents them from doing it. Back to you, Emma. Well, I was going to say just again about that email that Another thing that stuck out was, didn't she say essentially there are like, there are 156 eligible, eligible people on the waiting list before him and we have to be fair to those people. Like it wasn't even like he was 157th in line. Like she was basically saying, no, we can't because of this hard cutoff. But also there are 156 people on a wait list not able to participate in programming either who are eligible like that i if i understood it right that also you, you did you, you did you, you did so i mean i don't know this is the second monthly radio show where i can't muster the level of passion that goes along with my thinking on this uh, uh it just like it's just egregiously wrong you know society supposedly wants people to rehabilitate while they're locked up wants them to program, demands that they program, but then refuses to, to program, refuses to let them to program. And again, that, that it goes back, Mike, how many times have you heard me fuss about Roger E. Goodman, who's chair of the Public Safety Committee, and Daniel, uh, 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 God, I can't remember, Jeannie Darnell, 
uh, you know, who's in charge of uh, human services and reentry at the Senate. You know, these these are the people who are responsible for dollars being put in the DOC budget so that people like Loretta Taylor and the superintendents and education departments can let people in to these classes. And they're not doing it. So, the, you know, the, the, the only responsibility is there. I mean, and the, you know, the not funny thing, in one week, we had so many of these things pop up. I think Ari, I remember sitting in the, like in the bullpen area of the office and, and having lunch and Marley was talking about Blackwell and we were talking about Douglas Allen. And I know, Emma, you're working with a couple of people and I'm guessing you are too. And it's, but I mean, it's just blatant dishonesty. If, if you, you know, was was there a movie or a book that talked about lying liars? I was like, you know, that that's government. That's Roger Goodman and Gene Darnell and Jay Inslee, and for that matter, you know, a legislator by the way, who's always been very interested in reentry and DOC issues, um, came out two days ago, and I've got a direct quote in an email, like that he started out being hopeful about Cheryl Strange as I did, and now. He's already, you know, a couple of weeks into her being appointed by Inslee, like not seeing anything good. Uh, and I'm not seeing anything good either. I'm, and it's starting to look like one of the biggest disappointments ever. But it's just they don't you won't find legislators or Inslee or his general counsel or his chief of staff or his deputy chief of staff or Cheryl Strange or anybody in state government just standing up in front of the Seattle Times or the or South, South Seattle Emerald or Spokesman Review and saying, we, we don't budget, we make it impossible for people to program. But that's what they do. But that's, that's what they true. do. That's it's exactly, I mean, yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I think there are two pretty well circulated, like, facts and figures here that I, that I just want to, um, I think they're well circulated among people who focus on these issues or work with these issues, but uh, maybe they're less well known. It is, you know, data um, shows that correctional education makes an individual 50, up to 50% less likely to recidivate. Participating in educational programming makes an individual up to 50% less likely to recidivate after they release and um, another comes to just the financial figures. Every one dollar invested in education returns four to five dollars in taxpayer money by uh, reducing recidivism rates. So the and that's a I think that's a very large like Rand Corporation study. So the data is there to back up that these programs, investing in it will save, I mean, a $1 investment with a 4 to $5 return on investing in correctional education. But the money is not there. We see that the money is not there. The, the opportunities are not there. Um, and I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And it's, um, but anyways, um, I'd also like to talk about, like, just apart from these barriers, I think, like, Adrian, Ari, you guys, Ari the Younger, you guys both brought up some 
other, you know, like what else, um, some other individuals that we wanted to talk about who education is pretty infeasible for them for like other reasons. Um, who do we want to talk about next? Adrian, um, Darcy Andrews or someone? Well, well, I do have um, somebody that, on my caseload that um, has ran into barriers surrounding access to internet and knowing how to navigate the internet and um, even open up his email and log on to things. It's like he doesn't have a clue on how to do those things. And that has been a challenge in communicating with um, the individual. Um, I also have somebody that is at a facility where they were taking a program, they were in a program. Um, I believe they were trying to get their ATA degree in business management and a certificate in small business. And so they had started the program. And then the program facilitator or the advisor had told them that the teacher had said that they changed the curriculum and will no longer offer the last class until the end of the year, which is past his release date. So he's take spent all that time taking the class and he's not even going to be able to finish the class. And it, it kind of threw off his release plan and how he wanted to move when he got out. And just talking, when are you had mentioned about the two groups of people that um, either get the access to the education or don't get the access to education. I feel like DLC intentionally keeps some people from programming because they get more money to keep them locked up. They rather they rather get that cash flow than invest money in the programming to where they'll be successful and not recidivate. So that's my thoughts on it. You know, I want to, I mean, you mentioned return on investment being so high. And, um, you know, last Saturday we had this graduation celebration for Jenny Barton. And if anybody doesn't know who she is, just Google Jenny, G-I-N-N-Y Barton, and you'll probably get like 10 million hits in one-third of a second. because she's Congratulations, Jenny. She's so like... Uh, Eric Johnson from Como and his uh, was was at uh, the celebration, and I and uh, asked me, you know, about what the about post prison education program involved with Jenny over the years, and then uh, the lady who was with him, and I think it was his wife, but I'm I, I'm not I'm not sure, but she was. Uh, super inquisitive and I enjoy talking to her was like um, asked about costs and we had just had a board of directors member ask me for a PL statement on, on Jenny so we, from, and, and so I knew the number I know I know what we spent not payroll dollars which would double triple the number but I know what we spent in direct service dollars on Jenny over the last 11 years and it's thirteen thousand dollars and so like here you've got this woman who's set the world on fire in a public way graduated the university of washington uh, not in prison uh united with her kids 
uh, and been accepted into graduate school and has become an influencer. I mean, uh, to say the least, I mean, she, she just had the, uh, the biggest TV station in, in Germany just flew in and I was at her house the other day. Um, and she's, you know, ABC, good morning show. God knows how much media she's getting right now. But I, I talking to Eric Johnson from Como, I, I was thinking like, what's a life worth? You know, so we, we, uh, uh, yeah, sure. You know the answer to that. Who asked me that? Yeah. Uh, so, um, we, uh, anyway, so we spent $13,000 with, you know, lawyers, clothing, computers, tuition, books, groceries, housing, rent, and somebody puts their life together. And until we come along, all that happens is the DOC fails and fails and fails and fails again. I'm surprised anybody who works for the Department of Corrections has the audacity to show their face in public. I mean, the readmission rates are 50%, the recidivism rates 30.7%. All they do is fail. Half the people that are in the prisons right now are people that have been previously incarcerated. So, but for a, a relatively little amount of money, when you talk about return on investment, uh, we made we we paved the way for somebody to take charge of their life and do spectacularly well. And I don't know if Adrian wants to talk about it, but Adrian's right on par with Jenny. You know, like multiple incarcerations and all of that ended. You know, it was like come out recidivate. You know, come out recidivate. Come out recidivate. But when got involved with us and and let us work for her and and now she's just, again this amazing influencer and 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 um, so the thirty three thousand a year to incarcerate somebody with no programs available, just keep them locked up in warehouse, I guess, and feed them pills and let them have suboxone and or um, give them a chance to program and, and, and prepare themselves for reentry and, and do well. So I want you to talk about JPay. I know you love JPay tablets, Emma. <laughs> and so it's like, I mean, th these tablets could be such a vehicle, you know, so, so, so like Loretta Taylor won't let somebody into class Right, because and they got 156 people on a waiting list. Just this, this was in one prison, by the way. I think this is at the Twin Rivers Unit at Maroon Correctional Complex. So if you amplify that times all the prisons in the state, God knows how many are on waiting list. But, but you know, a, a good, a, you know, DOC works with JPay very closely. They're like joined at the hip, and 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 there could be instead of selling prisoners music. In tablets and junk, uh, they could be, you know, there could be really valuable programming on, on those tablets, and they they won't do it. And the DOC, which is in a position to demand that they do it, won't. Okay, here's here's the thing though is that is that that's that's actually not um, okay. Well, let me back up because because JPay um, could <laughs> JPay could and should be. Um, Sorry, Ari the Younger just said, I feel like um, Ari misunderstands uh, how you feel towards JPay, and you do. Because... That was a joke when I said that. 
<laughs> All right. If you, you in a couple more years, you'll learn this word called facetious. It's F A C E T I O U S. I think being facetious. Okay. I thought I thought it was so obvious I was being facetious. I didn't think there was any chance anybody would yeah. listen. I meant okay. more the the educational opportunity through right. those JPay tablets was something that I know Emma has also taken issue with because it's just not sufficient. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Like that's what I, um, and this should be, could and should be like a whole episode in itself. But um, here's the issue with JPEG tablets is, is that the education that's provided on there, one, one, it's not there. Like, we know that it's not there, and you're right, that um, the 156 people who are on the waiting list and barred from programming at all do not have educational material, for the most part, like, on the tablets. Like, JPay advertises uh, on their website. There's pictures of, you know, people in college graduation garb and advertising them as this educational tool, and um, it's, it's not there. There is music movies that they uh, pay for with their, um, you know, some, you know, 19 cent an hour or something that it is, salary, they buy movies and books, and, you know, sometimes they don't work. Anyways, like, but there, but there are not classes on there, as they advertise in, <clears throat> you know, and so you're right that 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 better than nothing to at least have what you're advertising have some sort of classes on the tablets um that being said um which will not happen because jpay is you know jpay is a predatory company for them to really have quality <laughs> educational material on the tablets um you know it, i don't um you know, quality is not their focus, uh, rehabilitative, rehabilitative, um, you know, material. I think there are like, <clears throat> like some parenting courses available. I don't know. I was talking to, um, one of our students who's in there about like what actually is on there right now. And there's like some self-help, self-guided course. And that is the extent of the educational material. Um, it's, uh, far from what they advertise. Um, but the thing is, um, for individuals that, like, we have in mind who are barred from programming and who have no options right now, like, um, what they do have the option for is correspondence courses that are hundreds of dollars out of their pocket to do the courses on the tablets, right? Like, and these, courses are not um these i mean it, it, these individuals are capable of way more and they deserve an educational experience um that is you know that has learning from learning from students around them learning from peers having questions answered like there is um and that was like sorry that was one of the major points of my thesis is that it's not sufficient to have someone, you know, reading. It's like us in college, like reading a textbook. I wouldn't have um, been successful doing that, reading a textbook and answering questions and considering that, you know, a college education for myself. I mean, it's it's something, but 
it's, I think, um, even more crucial for there to be a group learning environment, a learning community. Um, And strip down, I mean, that's what I consider it to be, is as if you're reading a textbook and answering questions about it. Um, That's what um, would be the stripped down version of education that, that then these predatory companies could claim that they are providing a college education and getting rid of the programs that come in and actually provide a quality experience that these individuals deserve because they're saying, oh, well, we already provide an education that's, you know, rid of all that messiness and all of the work that goes into providing that group learning environment by just, you know, it's essentially, you know, and it's, there is the correspondence with the teachers via email, um, but that's not necessarily something I support. Do I support it over nothing? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think it's shocking that, um, you know, when I was doing work in New York, they didn't have, they also didn't have like the learning management system with the, with the courses on there and the full like access to take college courses. They had this like, um, like minimum, minimal version of like Khan Academy where you could watch some educational videos. And even that is not available in the uh, facilities in Washington where I've talked to people, there is nothing like, mm. there, and so I supported over that having classes available. Um, I can't say that's something that I would, you know, necessarily argue for because I, I want more for these people. But anyways, so that's, that's, that's where I, you know, wanted to clarify my stance on, on uh, the potential of, tablets for educational purposes. I think they are a, you know, a supplemental tool to, um, and can facilitate out of the classroom learning. But anyways, I, I really do think that that the tablets and issues related to JPEG is a whole separate conversation. But um, yeah. You know, years ago, uh, at the prison out of column by there's a guy named Brian. Brian Walsh was the education director out there. And then he went on to, to have Pat's position at the state board. And then he went on to work for Vera. And that's when Pat came into the state board. But Brian got national acclaim because he, t- he took he took the server that was in the, ed- in the uh, education department at Column Bay and he got permission from people like Kaplan and to download their website onto the servers. And it was really miraculous to stand in that room with prisoners who were on computers in the Kaplan website, but not really online on the Kaplan website, but everything that Kaplan and all these other really worthwhile websites had were downloaded onto the server the Peninsula had in the education department at the DOC's prison. And so they, people, prisoners could have a very lifelike experience online, on computers, learning, working with valuable stuff in a, in a community, you know, you know, prisoners together with educators. But um, that never got carried forward to overcome the hurdle that we were discussing earlier, because you still 
the people who have sentences longer than four years wouldn't be allowed into that room, you know. But, you know, I, years ago, a guy named Dolphy Jordan, who's a close friend of mine, he did 21 years in prison. He went down, 16 years old, he went down in 1989. And he came out of, he came out of prison and he just did spectacularly well on, on the compass test. So, like, he came out, a CCO who was amazing, who just got frustrated with the DOC and left the Department of Corrections, but so he's up in Spokane. But he, when he was at Reynolds Work Release, he actually drove Dolphy over to the office, and Dolphy, so Dolphy comes in. And we started working with him, and we tutored him seven days a week, uh, literally, preparing him for the compass test. And he placed college level on, on uh, reading and writing. And back then, compass test was writing and reading. And then there was math. And he placed the highest level of adult basic education, 90, in math. And, and he attributed doing so well on reading and writing on the compass test and being able to go right into college level classes so a friend of his that he was locked up with, Dennis McDonald, um, encouraged him to read while he was locked up during his 21 years in prison. At some point, I think they were in an out-of-state prison in Arizona, but Dennis, Dennis got Dolphy to reading and not junk, these junk-ass paperback Western books and romantic novels and the, the, the crap that comes around on the cart in the prisons if you're a novel. You know, yeah, those are the go-tos. Huh? <laughs> no, I just yeah. said those are the go-tos. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, just, but, but like, maybe the, a biography about Harry Truman or Pulitzer Prize-winning books that just are super high quality. And, um, and, and so just being able to read those kind of books, that's why we spend, I don't know how much money, we probably, sh- you know, we ship books into prisoners, have Amazon ship books into prisoners weekly. But but being able to to just read, just read was huge for for him when he came out. And and then, you know, there came the time, uh, South Seattle, all Seattle Community Colleges, South Seattle Community College, North, uh, SBI, all of the campuses do a common graduation. It's at Benaroya Hall, home of the Seattle Symphony, and the year that Dolphy graduated, um, my little favorite picture um, of our 16-year history is Dolphy standing on the stage of Ben Royal Hall and the chancellor putting putting the president's award around his neck. You know, so um, and he's built an amazing life with beautiful kids and a wonderful wife and a beautiful home. And but the the start of that was reading while he was locked up. And and he placed he's told that story a million times. So like, but not, not even that's happening. I mean, not even that's happening. So I don't know. It's it's like, I mean, you know, we got we got really. This is a little off topic, but um, sometimes something happens with people we're working for that's just so discouraging that I get despondent. And like, uh, so we've got a student who's um, LRA, most people won't even, people who think they're an expert on DOC won't even know what LRA is, uh, but most won't. But it's 
it's kind of like you're out in the community, but you're still a prisoner. So it's limited uh, restrictive access or less restrictive access. So, so you're not like an immediate security prison. You're not on the island at McNeil at Special Commitment Center. You're, you're, but you're you're actually a prisoner as though you were in a prison or on McNeil, but you're out in the community, but under really intense scrutiny. And so we've been working with this guy, Emma, who you know as well as I do, who you worked with him yesterday. Uh, and uh, his attorney, who's amazing, Sonia Hardenbrook, thought she had a, a firm agreement with Bob Ferguson with the Attorney General's office that this guy in a couple of months' time would be freed from LRA. And then uh, that, that commitment was broken yesterday. And so now Sonia will do what she's done so many times. She'll take it to trial, and she'll hand Bob Ferguson's dumbass pieces. Uh, let me start. I don't want Mike going to the corner and arrest because I used the wrong profanity. Well, the SEC swoops in with their gunships. But, you know, these people that, that deal with, with situations like we're talking about are just, they're, they're horrible. I mean, like, lock a 12-year-old boy up, at age 12, um, because, uh, I mean, I don't even know how you can commit a sex crime if you're 12 years old. This kid was locked up at 12 and, and uh, for years and even put on McNeil Island, the special commitment center, for nothing more than stealing a pair of panties from a next-door neighbor and doing like a you-show-me-yours-I'll-show-you-mine kind of things that I think kids are curious about and do. Uh, but but so that group of people in Ferguson's office uh, decided that they're not going to go along with him being freed from LRA, and so Sonia will take him to trial like she like she has so many times. She'll, she and a good jury will hand Ferguson's staff their ass, and I'm looking forward to it. But uh, what we learned yesterday that for him to be free, she'll have to go to trial again. It's like, you know, years and, and, and uh, it just, so, so on, on that, on, on that level of disappointment, uh, is people who are trying to want to build a life, um, are being blocked from doing it. I mean, it's just incredible to me that the DOC demands that you program and then blocks you from programming. Publicly, their stance is you got to program, you got to program, you got to program. Nothing good can happen if you don't program. But behind the scenes, they're blocking you. And then, you know, I'm going to see if I can find that email from Loretta really quickly. Actually, it came from Daniel's assistant, and I'll, I don't want to read it. So, y'all talk for a minute while I find it. Um. Something I actually wanted to touch on was that, you know, we've been discussing um, people with release dates that are over four plus years out um, and the inability to access education and programming with that. But something that I've actually been dealing with recently is um, there's a student who we're working with uh, named Sebastian and he, um, DOC had his release date for early May, and he is still uh, in prison. He's at Shelton, and, you know, he's he were looking at filling out FAFSAs and college applications, and we're trying to get him enrolled, but we don't know when he's going to be released. And in the meantime, there's no programming he can do to, to help further his education, even though he's supposed to be released. 
Um, and I know that that was something that we encountered as well with um, Elida Reeves, correct? Um, where you have these people who were who should have been released, and because of some, I don't know, bureaucratic element um, that's preventing them from doing that, they they also just can't further or pursue their educational goals um, during this like period of just no communication from DOC, um, and um, and so and that's, that's, that that's like working with that's. I mean, that's a whole radio show. <laughs> and um, so you're what I see, you're, you're locked up, but you're past, you're locked up past your release date. And I, and I don't even know what to be interested to see what Loretta Taylor at DSC headquarters would have to say about that. But those people can't get into programming. And, and, and there's, I mean, Roger, I was in a legislative Zoom meeting with Roger Goodman, uh, a couple of months ago, and when the Blake decision came down, and and they were estimating officially estimating a hundred to two hundred thousand current former prisoners cases were impacted by that. I think they were allocating seventy seven million dollars to recalculate all those sentences. So this huge high numbers. I mean, we just had you were just talking to a guy yesterday, Aria Carlos. You know, they just one minute you're a prisoner, then you go back for resentencing, then you're for, and then you're out of the streets. And so, but those people, if they're sitting in prison past the release date, DOC's not letting them, letting them program, and they should be free. DOC should be bringing them caviar, cream cheese, nasty spumani, Netflix movies, and 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 what can I do to make this egregious wrong be right for you? And instead, they just. <laughs> bury him further. No, you can't program. Just sit here. Sorry your past your release date, but just sit here, suck your thumb. Don't for God, don't get infracted, you know, don't cause trouble. And 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 no, you can't program. You know, so um I don't even know. I wanna I wanna read Loretta Taylor's email. This was like so after Daniel wrote Armbruster wrote that that under certain circumstances, if people were really motivated, she thought people should, who were serving long sentences, should be looked at as being a chance to get into uh, programs. And then, and then a month goes by, and then all of a sudden, Caroline Metzger, who's Daniel's executive assistant, sends this email to me. What it is, so she gets this email, and this is specifically in reference to getting Douglas Allen being able to program so that over six or seven years he can build a record that he can show ISRB and possibly go home and come out in the community as a valued person as opposed to staying in prison at 35 grand a year. So, but Loretta wrote, we currently have 156 on the approved wait list. And like Emma, like you said, that's the wait list. So she's not talking about people that are, are programming. These are people waiting to program at one small prison. This is the Twin Rivers Unit at Monroe with, with verified GEDs. <coughs> TR, which I, when I took that to mean, so, so they want you to have, they want you to be under four years and have a verified GED. In what a tuxedo and a Rolls Royce and a servant and what before before you can possibly get you know program at TRU to get into the degree program offered through Edmonds College based on the reasons Mark Kuska previously mentioned 
We have to prioritize those lists and fairness to the population and to be good stewards of our resources. We hope to serve everyone, but unfortunately, as previously stated, we simply do not have the fiscal space or financial resources that will allow us to do so. You know, honestly, I want to say I want to say that that uh, I can't use the F word, but I want to say that is the dumb effingness email and statement that I've ever read or heard in my entire effing life. If you want to protect your resources, protect help people prepare to do well after release so they don't come back in your goddamn prisons at thirty five thousand a year. I, I mean, that was like. To write an email as ignorant and dumbass as that email is, I think I'd have to work on it for a month. Like, how, oh, I write on it for a week or a couple of hours. Now let's come back tomorrow. Let's see, how can I even make it more stupid than it was yesterday? And then after a month of every day making it more stupid than the day before, then finally an email to Ari comes so we can have a heart attack. Oh, no. <laughs> Damn. Maybe that was their motive. Like I'd, I'd read it, get so pissed off, I'd go right, and they'd be rid of me. <laughs> yeah, you ain't going to no time soon. I tell you know, Ellen Vale was. Uh, I think he had retired, uh, but I, something happened, and I and he and I stay in touch, uh, and I have the greatest respect for him. He was secretary of DSC for. While and he was at a high level in DOC for 30 years. And but I asked Elgin one day, I'm like, I said, I said, I, I get the feeling that if I had a heart attack there and died, the program went under, there'd be cel- there'd be celebration at, at, at DOC headquarters. And for Bayonam Elgin said, there's some of that. <laughs> It'd be like, it's kind of like what Pat Sievers was saying the other day, you know. You know, we, we, we maybe cause some hassles or, you know, re, 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 try to require the Department of Correction more than, than other nonprofits do or other entities do. But, but uh, damn, that's just the, the most ignorant email. I, I, I'm 74 years old as of yesterday. I don't think if I live to be 100, I'll ever read a more ignorant email. It's, it's, going back to what you said, Emma, on costs and, and return on investment. If you want to, Loretta, if you want, I'm going to write it to her. But if you want to protect the resources of the state's taxpayers and let the people who need to program the most program and stop focusing on the people who can make it on their own and probably won't recidivate anyway. Just some conversations I can't have without extreme profanity and then Mike goes crazy and he has cardiac arrest and SEC flies and the gunships and we all go to federal prison again. You know, but if I was in federal prison, it'd be really cool because I wouldn't have to get stupid ass email like that one from Daniel's assistant. Couldn't get email like that. It was so, it was so backwards. It was so backwards. That's me. Pat P, Adrian, in terms of reentry. We only got eight minutes to go, seven minutes. Pet peeve? Let me ask this again, if you don't mind. If I'm making this too personal, next time you see me, you can knock me out. But, uh, but uh, the, you know, you know, like Keith Whiteman refers to himself as a recidivating machine. You know, like come out, go back, come out, be released, go back six times. 
And then, so, so you got, you had X number of incarcerations and what, what would have, what, what could the Washington state department of corrections have done earlier in your life to save you wasting so many years of your life? I mean, if you take the last years of your life since you started school and in this spectacular, what you've done is spectacular. And, 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 and that could have started earlier. You know, so what could the goddamn state have done? I mean, just do what we did or do something else. What could they have done in, in terms of Loretta Taylor's resources? What could they have done uh, to have to move you along years earlier than happened? Access is a word that keeps coming to my head when you ask me that. Like, I don't, I just thinking back when I was younger and in and out of prison and just seems like I was just being ran through this system like cattle or something like that. It wasn't really like there was not, I don't know. I feel like access to programming would have been, would have been good for me early on instead of having to jump through so many hoops just to get my needs met, whether it was my medical, education, or whatever it was. It seemed like I was always fighting to get the basic things that I needed just to live. So, I don't know. All right, what do you think the answer is for the students that you're working with or applicants that you're working with? Yeah, that's a good question. I just briefly, I feel like this also what Adrian was just saying goes back to the last radio show when we were talking about medical negligence, but like, if you're bleed, if you're dying, <laughs> it's hard to like really put like fight for, you know, your educational goals. There are a lot of really pressing issues that inmates are dealing with on a daily basis that they don't have the energy or they can't put the energy into fighting for their educational access because they need access to like, proper health care and um anyway that's Is this that, your email that I said to everybody a couple hours ago? Have you had a chance to look at it? It's, it's exactly along what you're talking about. So a lawyer uh I'll just read it, but a lawyer sent uh an email to me earlier this morning and she she said uh she said, I was contacted by a potential client who was assisting a prisoner who has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And this lawyer is a fairly high powered lawyer with a high powered firm said to me in the email that the prisoner is receiving chemo and radiation, but is facing considerable difficulties in getting other treatment and medications he needs. Um, and then she was, the lawyer was wanting to be able to pass our contact information on to the prisoner who's down at the Washington State Penitentiary. But it's exactly what you just said, Ari. I mean, stage four cancer. I, I mean, I don't want that. You know, so like, maybe it's like none of their needs are being met. Right. Well, right. yeah. if anybody's having their needs met, it's the people who don't need to have their needs met or need to have their needs met the least. And I, that's like, I don't even know who sang that song, Bang the Drum Softly. I guess I can Google that. 
So, like, I don't even, you know, like, if you bang the drum softly, nobody in state government or DOC is going to do anything about this. But and this, this is such a big issue. If you bang the drum loudly, it's not going to get anywhere, you know? Yeah, to answer your question, I guess it would be what Adrian was saying about access to, to these educational opportunities. But then also just, like, getting those basic needs met in order to pursue those educational opportunities um, or to, to, to look for them. And, um, you know, with the, with the students I'm working with, I mean, there's varying levels of, you know, difficulty and why um, they're facing that difficulty. But yeah, I'm with Adrian, just access and also information. I think the big thing is, is, you know, having these prisoners understand what, educational outlets are available to them and how they can go about pursuing that um, along with letting them pursue that. Um, I think those two are really working tandem. We're down to 59 minutes. We got less than a minute ago, but what you just said reminds me. So my first meeting with the Department of Corrections was March. It was January 29th of 2006 at DOC headquarters in Tumwater. And it was in uh, the secretary's big conference room, Harold Clark was there, the secretary. It was the day I met Alvin Vale. He was there as deputy secretary of the prisons division. And Mike Paris, who was in charge of programs, he's retired now and, uh, from DOC for quite a few years. He was in there. And I think a, a deputy secretary, maybe Karen Daniels, who was in charge of community corrections, was there. And... Um, and at that time, Mike Paris was proud to announce to us and everybody I brought with me that day that DSC had budgeted $15 million. <laughs> I think the biennial budget at the time was eight was was uh, $1.8 billion. They had 8,000 employees, $1.8 billion biennial budget, and DOC's program person, this is this is the guy who was in the position that Loretta Taylor's in now. I was proud to announce to us that they had they had done fifteen point two. They had budgeted fifteen point two million for, for education and, and programming. That shows you right there where the DOC's priority is. It's like that's as good as flipping the bird at eighteen thousand people and their families as anything I've ever seen. I think, Emma, you need to write a newsletter for us to send out to our listserv about this. I'm serious. Get a 90 minutes. I'll try to keep yeah. it down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. In the We're out of time. Mike, you're going to have to edit something out of this to get us down to one hour. Da 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 da. If you got any questions, so like, uh, Adrian's email is adrian.tunney at postprisonedu.org. Emma is emma.hogan or just Emma? Emma.hogan. At, at postprisonedu.org. Ari is ari.rose-marquez at postprisonedu.org. Mine's ari.cone at postprisonedu.org. The website's postprisonedu.org. Um, and the main number is 206-408-5560. You know, join, join, join us and help us cause trouble.